So glad you can join me as we begin our study in 2 Samuel. First, let's have a word of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here, to be able to study your word. Help us, Lord, to look at the examples that are here in 2 Samuel and how we can be closer to you and how you are with us through our lives, Lord God. And the examples that we will see today are how David held on to you as he was a man after your own heart. Help us, Lord, to be such as David. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you saw at the beginning, uh, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. That is what Second Samuel is about, especially as we follow David. And before we go into Second Samuel, I'd like to thank uh, Scott for covering First Samuel and I think he did an excellent job. And we're actually going to refer to some of the things he, he spoke about in the last couple of weeks here in this uh, first lesson. Now, to prepare you for this first lesson, um, we'll be reading 2 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, but not the entire chapter 2. It'll be 1, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 7. So let's go ahead and get started. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, I didn't matter go. Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me. And kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of the alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put your forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow, or the bow. Indeed, it was written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gibor, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perish. And in chapter 2, verse 1, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Now, I was going to start out speaking and picking out the one verse, uh, verse 26, where it says, I grieve you, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. But I thought, and I think that Scott did a great job uh, explaining to us in the last couple of weeks that this verse and, and, and verses like it have nothing to do with homosexuality. I don't want to try to recover everything that he talked about, but I thought he did a great job of that. If you missed that, it was worth going back to uh, watching all the videos uh, that he recorded on First Samuel. Well, in this lesson, I want us to think about a book that was written by a man named William P. Young. It was called The Shack. It tells the story of a man trying to deal with the abduction and murder of his daughter. Her name was Missy. As the story progresses, we find Missy's father on a long journey to find God and find answers. Now, although the book was probably a fascinating read, one could gain at least a couple of false impressions from it. But first, you don't have to go on a long journey to find God. Secondly, answers are not always the ultimate goal. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1 that we read, we find David in the middle of a real-life struggle with grief. Now, of all the places to start this study, 
Grief would not be our first choice, I'm sure, but it's probably the right choice considering the circumstances. Believers need to be people of depth and substance. We need to be people who are able to embrace not only the joys of life, but also the sorrows that come with it. See, we Christians are called to be non-ancient, anxious um, presence in the midst of a world that is all about temporal feelings, all about me. So as we journey through these dark hours of David's life, we will find that God stands firm even when it seems like our world is altogether falling apart. Immediately, starting in uh, 2 Samuel, right now, is a challenge. It's like watching a sequel without watching the first movie. I, I think Scott said it well uh, a couple weeks ago um, that reading First Samuel was, you know, had everything that you want in a, in a, in a movie. Um, the excitement, and just everything, the action that's there, the drama. And I was thinking a few weeks ago, um, as I was continuing to study to get, prepare myself to speak on Second Samuel, that man, Second Samuel is like a soap opera with all the things that happen within it. And, and I'm sure you'll see what I mean if you've never read it before. If you have, you you understand uh, what I'm talking about. It's just so much that happens. First Samuel speaks of David's rise to power. David is anointed by Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel 16. And then in chapter 17, David, we see, kills Goliath, and he gains a great following. And Saul's jealousy in chapters 18 to 21 for David deepens, and so does David's friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Then we see that Saul goes on a killing spree, killing the priest of God, and attempting, not once, not twice, but several times to kill David. In chapters 22 to 23, David was the, uh, has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he relents. And at that time, in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is humbled and he backs off. Then Saul is right back after David. And once again, David is able to spare Saul's life while he and his men are in a, uh, a God-induced slumber. Of course, Saul repents again promising not to harm David anymore, chapter 26. Then David finally realizes in chapter 27 that Paul is not to be trusted. What we see in the grand finale of Saul's life towards the end, 1 Samuel 29-31, where Saul goes into battle with his army and, his son, and with his army and with his sons and he dies by his own sword. David's best friend, Jonathan, also doesn't make it out alive. And the Philistines revel and celebrate in the death of the first king of Israel. And so, this script that couldn't have been written any better by any Hollywood writer or director or executive producer leads us into 2 Samuel, where David receives word of not only the fall of the king, but the fall of his dearest friend. His reign begins in the season of, the, of sadness. 
How many times has the death of someone dearly, someone dearly uh, and clearly loved by a leader been the breaking point of their life? Often life's most difficult blow for the Christian is not their own death, but the death of those closest to them. Bereave means to deprive ruthlessly or by force. The real agonizing pain of death is its earthly fin finality. Being deprived or denied the, uh, the presence of someone we love for the remainder of our lives, especially when we know that they're not Christians, when they die, is the most severe of all heartaches. But we can learn much from the way David dealt with his painful blow. How can we find God in our grief? That's what this study is today, this portion. There are three important elements revealed in David's painful experience and what we've read thus far in first, uh, Second Samuel that contain practical lessons that can help us cope with our seasons of grief. So firstly, our relationship with God must be strong before tragedy strikes. You can refer to 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6 to see what I mean. Just as we read 2 Samuel chapter 1, we should have noticed or may have noticed something that God is not mentioned at all. You don't see the Lord or his hand in this chapter, but we know he's there. See, back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, in the verses as I talked about, the scripture there says, but David found strength in the Lord, his God. We know that God is in 2 Samuel 1 because David is in 2 Samuel 1. Wherever David is, God is present as his rock and fortress. When facing grief, it is sometimes difficult to see the Lord. This is why God must be our fortress before tragedy and difficulties, tribulations happen in our lives. Often we are like Excuse me. Often, when our life is, um, when we treat God casually, or, or when our life with God is casual, something like, "Well, I worship on Sunday morning." Is that all you do? I worship on Sunday morning. That's the type of relationship I have with God, and that's all I do. We are ill prepared for tragedies. We begin to wonder. With all the things that are going on in the world, all the problems with the governments and with our government and with COVID and people murdering one another and just all types of tragedies in this world, we ask, where is God? When it's not his whereabouts that uh, is the problem, it's ours. David's relationship with God, although it was not perfect, was not a constant, oh, excuse me, was a constant and consistent part of his walk. In other words, if if we relate to David in the way that I just said it for us, it was not a uh, Saturday I go to Tabernacle um, type of walk. He worshiped. He wrote songs. He served. He prayed. Because his life with God was a constant he was able to say without any doubts that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46, 1. 
Can we say that? Secondly, an emotional upheaval during times of grief is common even to those who are walking closest to God. I'm referring to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11-12. Psychologists often refer to the five stages of grief when someone is going through tragedy. Christians sometimes view grief as a weakness or abnormality. Yet we forget that these stages are evident even in the life of David, and we read about them today. Remember, he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Notice the stages of grief, again, back in chapter 1. In verse 5, it would be denial. Are you sure they are dead? Grief is found in verse 12. They mourned and wept. Then came anger in verse 14. Why? Depression in verse 26. Oh, how I grieve in those verses surrounding it. Then we get to chapter 2 in verse 1, where acceptance is found. I will go where you want me to go, Lord. Again, when we are we or other people are grieving, we often ask as if these stages are not normal. Phrases like, I have to be strong, or they are at peace now, or even the more popular one, this must have been God's will, so I need to have faith are common during times of grief. But these statements are way off base. Grieving is not a sin. Even Jesus grieved. He grieved, grieved for us in the sins that he knows that we commit and will commit. And that is why he had looked to the cross for us. The challenge is making it from stage four, that is depression, to stage five, that is acceptance. Thirdly, Healing is a process that at times can be slow, but it's promised by God. Again, 2 Samuel 2, 1. David moved to the stage of acceptance by resuming his fellowship with the Lord. And this can be difficult, and it was difficult for, for David. Often people will have difficulty praying, opening their Bible, or even walking into the church building while going through the grieving process. Now, we shouldn't make it seem like that's a strange thing that people would feel that way. Much of this comes from being told, well, it was God's will by other folks. We need to be careful not to blame God for something he didn't do because it can give those grieving a negative impression of him. And although the losses we face may not always be uh, his intentional will, he can bring a blessing from it. You might remember a few weeks ago, I spoke on Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Now, without going through the entire sermon, in that verse, it talks about how God can work things together for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. And I told a story about uh, my grandmother and and her cookies. And and the thing that I was getting at was all those individual ingredients that you put together to make. The, the batch of cookies. Uh, at first, they're all seen, you know, all by themselves, all the different sugars and the water and the, all the other ingredients. And you wouldn't dare sit there probably, except probably for the chocolate chips, um, sit there and eat one, each one of those ingredients all by themselves, especially the flour. I mean, who wants to do that? 
when you mix all those things together, cook, cookies come out after, you know, you put them in the oven and cook them and they taste so well. That's the point we always want to get to. We want to get straight to the, the juicy morsel, the what tastes good, what feels good. We don't want to go through those and swallow the hard ingredients of life. They are difficult. But when they are working together, a beautiful thing comes out of it. That doesn't mean it's not still not hard. When we're talking about grieving, in relations to grieving. David asked God, where shall I go up? When we go through grief, we receive advice from every side. That advice is nearly always well-intentioned, but often wrong. Some of the best advice we can follow when grieving is to be still. Uh, Psalm 46.10. And if we're trying to give advice, we should just be quiet. Just sit there with the person. Don't be like they, uh, Job's friends. After seven days, now deciding to say something and you just put your foot in your mouth. Only when we get still can we know that he is God. Only he can lead us to a place where our grief will be comforted by a fresh vision of his will for our lives. Now, grief is certainly not the most pleasant place to start uh, a study, but it's a good place. See, before we can ever find God, uh, we have to get rid of those things that are blocking him from our vision. For many, that is grief. Grief from the loss of a loved one. Grief from the loss of a job. Grief from the consequences of your own sins or somebody else's. Grief from a divorce, even grief from a disappointment with God. Second Samuel begins with David grieving. You can't get around that. This will not be the last time we see David grieve either. Nor will your life be without seasons of grief. The latter years of David's life are fascinating or are a fascinating study because they are much like our lives because David is much like us. Maybe uh, our lives are not as dramatic as David's, but certainly just as frantic. As we continue this study, we will be comforted in the fact that God is our rock and our fortress, a very present help in times of trouble. So I have some questions for you that I'd like you to answer. Um, I'm very interested, as it says in your answers, and would love for you to share them with me by emailing me. Um, so it's more than just us, and I say us, those of us men are studying with you, more than you just sitting and listening to us. We want you to, to really participate because while we are, we are interested in your growth, we want to grow as well. Um, and the way we grow is by studying and, and teaching and studying some more and teaching we want you to study yourself and and see what thus says the lord i will tell you that um what was the question on here yeah it's not this one but that's fine we'll, we'll get to that next question there's a question that i want us all to to really truly think about I'm taking the time right now so you can maybe write them down. But um, again, this is a video, so you can always pause, click pause and uh, write questions down. 
that way you have a chance to really think about it and, and send me answers before uh, next week. We're going to move on to 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It said it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelites, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. <coughs> Excuse me. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. As we begin this next part of the study, we want to look at finding God in life's transitions. Key verse here is now then be in verse 7. Be strong and brave for Saul your master is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, if you ask some people, not all, but some people, what the greatest invention of the last 25 years is, you'll probably get a variety of answers. Somebody might say, well, there's nothing better than a GPS, the global positioning system. The G GPS is responsible for less stress for some people, fewer missed sales falls, and stronger marriages. This is less fussing in the car, maybe. No longer does the man have to, to deny that he is lost. Well, let me tell you right now, I have no problem saying I'm lost. I will pull over on the side of the road and try to find help. But I digress. The GPS never lets it happen for some people in the first place. No longer do we have to stop and ask for directions. The GPS tells us where we are to turn in a nice, soothing voice. GPS is can be a wonderful thing because it gives us precise directions. Well, it can, but it messes up a lot. Let me tell you what doesn't, the Bible. In the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 2, we find David in need of precise direction. After the death of Saul, David is anointed the king of Judah. The grieving process had just reached the acceptance stage, and now he was he was to make a huge transition in his life. You know, when we read from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, it may seem like Saul did, died and now I'm king. I'm going to go do some things. There was a grieving process. I don't want to make it seem like it was just, just like that that happened. And we need to make sure that we understand these are humans that we're, we're dealing with, that we're talking about, and they they would have proceeded just like us. And in fact, they had longer grieving um, days um, than we did, than we do. 
So remember that. Although David was a mighty warrior, though, his life did not begin that way. As you know, he was raised and trained as a shepherd. He felt comfortable with the tools of a shepherd. But now he was being called to leave his comfort zone. How many how many times have you been called to leave your comfort zone and you don't want to? He was called to leave his comfort zone and enter into uncharted territory. As with any life transition, he was in need of direction. Let me tell you, life transition is difficult. And I'm learning this as I begin my transition out of the military in a year or so. What is a new job, new school, growing children, loss of a loved one, a divorce, a marriage, a new congregation, moving around, and dare I say, even aging. Whatever the case may be, transition is hard. We often become moody, anxious, which we shouldn't be, and fearful. It's kind of like trying to get somewhere you have never been without good directions. It's difficult because you are leaving your comfort zone and entering into uncharted territory. See, David had no idea where he was going, but he knew who was going to get him there. Our lives are filled with transitional periods associated with health, again, with aging, jobs, and relationships. There are three directors, though, three things that I want us to look at that would assist us through these difficult transitions. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, and just in the first part, it says do, we should do what God wants us to do or do what God wants you to do. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, according to Acts chapter 13, verse 22. This does not mean that David had a heart like God's. It means that he was after God's heart. With his life, he was diligently seeking the very heart of God. But this is not to say that he never he never made mistakes. Let's call them what they are. That he never sinned. That he never got stepped out of line. That he didn't act as we do. Rather, amid all his issues that he had and the tragedies that came along, Malone, we see that David sought after the heart of God because he knew that only God could be his rock and a fortress. Now, here's the good news. The God who guided David promises us that he will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. That's Psalm 32, verse 8. David's son Solomon wrote, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. One of the greatest things about G, uh, about the GPS is that, you know, when, when you miss a turn, it doesn't yell at you. It doesn't say, hey, idiot, you made a wrong turn. It either tells you to turn around or just say, recalculating. And it does it all with a nice, pleasant voice. Our destination is heaven, and God wants desperately for us to get there. We will take wrong turns. And when we do, he calls for us to turn around. If the 
consequences of our wrong turn um, tries to give us a different destination or a different path to a different destination. God wants us to recalculate and get back on the right route. The thing and the way we do that is by repenting. We're repenting and asking God for forgiveness. The thing we so often forget is that God made the map. He made the starting point and the destination. He doesn't just know it. He hasn't just studied it. He made it. We become a person after God's own heart when we seek after the very heart or the direction of God. Now, secondly, we need to go where God wants you to go. Again, Second Samuel, the latter part of verse 1. Second Samuel 2, verse 1. The first place a Christian should go when facing transition is the word of God. Too often we go somewhere else. I don't know where that somewhere else may be for you. Sometimes, a lot of times, we don't turn to God, and we should. That should be the first place we go. For the word of God is alive and powerful, Hebrews 4, verse 12. The words of the Bible have life, nouns with pulse rates, adjectives with muscles, verbs with power. You know, I sound like an elementary school teacher, but it's true. God works through these words. The Bible is to God what a surgical glove is to a surgeon. He reaches through them to touch deep within you. When anxiety eats away at your peace, our God says, cast all your cares on me. When loneliness creeps into your heart, our God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When fear keeps you awake at night, our almighty God says, do not be afraid. I love you. Have peace. Be strong now. Be strong. God said these words to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 19. And he responded by saying, Daniel, that is, when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Do not make a decision during transition, during tragedies, during when just having a hard time in life, whether they're large or small, without sitting before God, with your Bible open and an open heart, and then imitating the prayer of Daniel, speak my Lord, since you have given me strength, and be open for the answer that God wants you to hear. Secondly, when seeking God's direction, consult those within the family of faith. Others have asked the same questions you are asking. Others have faced the problems you are facing. Others have stood where you are standing. Hebrew, the Hebrews writer says in chapter 13 of um, verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, if your marriage is weak, find a strong one. If your faith is uh, wavering, find one on a firm foundation. Are you facing adversity? Find someone who overcame. Paul speaks of the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we all ourselves have received from God. 2 Corinthians 1.4 We're comforted by God, so we should comfort others because God comforted us because we remember that. As we are trying to go where God wants us to go, we should find others 
that means brothers and sisters in Christ, who have been where you are and leaned on them. God has empowered them or can empower them to help you. On this, I ask you, why don't we? It's probably because we don't know each other as well as we should. And so it's hard to lean on brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't know. Because we haven't availed ourselves or we haven't gotten out of our comfort zones to help others and let others help us. I'm talking about right here in our congregation. We need each other. We have to pull ourselves out of ourselves, get ourselves out of the way, and let God shine through us. Lastly, be who God wants you to be. 2 Samuel 2, 4-7, through 7, as we read. Sometimes we allow times of difficulty and transition to distract us from sharing our faith with others. But in reality, it is at times, at these times, that we are the most effective because people see the genuineness of our faith. Can they see yours? When we take off our mask and let people see our human side, we become real, relatable, and we become relevant. The message David sent to the men of Jabesh Gilead was a powerful testimony of his faith in God. Some of the best sermons ever written were written in times of struggle and adversity. Some of the best songs we sing were written in times of transition and uncertainty. I'm thinking about right now, uh, it is well with my soul. I know that the writer was writing that in the thoughts of about his wife and his, his daughters, who all died on the very same um, boat that, or ship that he was on, that he had to take to go and actually pick their bodies up and carry them up from England. Well, he came to pick them up in, in, in America. He was still in England. He picked them up and, uh, and it was on the very same, uh, not same ship, the same route that they were on. And he wrote that song thinking about them knowing that it was well with his soul that God would be with him. What kind of sermons will you choose to write with your life? What kind of songs? What songs will you choose to sing? David chose to claim his faith in God by saying, Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David knew he had a purpose. He had been anointed king, and it was time to pick himself up. Dust himself off and be who God had called him to be. There's a story that's told of a man who called his neighbor to help him move a couch. They had been stuck in the doorway. They pushed and they pulled until he was just exhausted. But the couch wouldn't budge. And as aspiration, the homeowner said, forget it. We'll never get this in. The neighbor had a puzzled look on his face when he asked, And life transitions are certain. Whether we like change or not, it is going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. It will happen in our lives, in our families, and in our congregations. It's happening right now in our congregation. The question we must ask is, how will we face the difficult transitions that come our way? It begins with knowing which direction we are going first. David certainly did not know exactly where his path would lead, but he trusted the one who made the map to get him there. 
and made sure he was pushing in the same direction. So let us push in the same direction that the Lord is going. I have some more questions for you to, to answer. And as I said before, I, um, I'm interested in what your answers are. And here I was asking in verse four, I mean, not verse four, number four. While we sometimes, and I forgive me for adding that extra letter there, I apologize. Why are we sometimes hesitant to consult our brothers and sisters in Christ during times of difficulty and transition? For me, it may be because I maybe I just don't trust my brothers and sisters because I have been treated in the past. Maybe it's just I don't know if I can trust them because I I don't talk to them. I don't I just don't know. I'm just being real with you all that this can be difficult. And we all have a part to play in that. But now you can't give my answer. I already gave the answer. So um, you got to give something different. I didn't mean uh, any puns uh, intended in, in number five. Uh, it's just a question. Now towards the bottom of the screen here, you will see that in regards to life's transitions, I have found um, the lesson that's listed there from one of our sister congregations to be very encouraging. And I will tell you uh, the video is very worth watching if you get some time uh, with yourself this week. Thank you all for being here with me and, and I hope that this lesson was encouraging, um, encouraging to you. Next week, uh, before next week comes along, I encourage you to please read Second uh, Samuel chapters, let's see, chapter 2. Go ahead and read chapter 2 again through chapter 6. Chapter 2 through chapter 6. What we'll be talking about there is finding God in the middle of conflict and finding God in worship. You all be blessed and be a blessing to others.